Here I want to talk to you this morning um, in the book of Matthew, in the book of Mark, and in the book of Luke. Um, they all record a paradoxical statement or teaching that Jesus gave. And paradoxical just means, if, if you're not familiar, something that seems to contradict each other but has a message in it. It's, it's a paradox. And the point is this, that when, when multiple authors record the same story, the same teaching, the same event, it's extremely important. So as you look through the, the Gospels, which are, in essence, biographies of the life of Jesus, right? Uh, different authors wrote about what happened for the sake of others, and everybody has a different perspective, right? So if, uh, if I were to write a, a, a book about Pastor Sean... If his wife was to write a book about him, or if one of you were to write a book about him, there would be things in that book that were different because we had different experiences with Sean, but they really wouldn't contradict. But now if we, all of us, wrote about the, the same exact instance and things about Sean, you'd say, well, that's pretty important because everybody understood and knew that about him. And that's true when we read the Gospels. So when you see the same teaching, the same scripture, the same whatever, in all of them, or a majority of them, it was a... It just means it was, very, it was a crucial teaching or a crucial event uh, or a principle uh, that was very important. So let's look at it. And I chose uh, today for us to read this out of the book of Matthew. We could have read it out of Mark. We could have read it out of Luke. They said the same, uh, very similar things. So in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 4, <clears throat> says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples... Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. That's the paradoxical statement, right? It seems like it contradicts itself. Basically, Jesus is saying life is found when life is given up. Which, huh? You know, it just, it doesn't seem to make sense. It's the paradox. And so let's keep reading the next uh, two verses that helps us uh, understand it. What good will it be, verse 26, for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. And so what is Jesus talking about in these four verses? Well, there are two aspects to this teaching. And I'm going to show them both to you this morning, and then we'll figure out what that means to us. The first aspect, just keep going in and out, it feels like, Thanks, Pastor Sean. Looking out for me as usual. Two aspects to the teaching. Uh, the first one is eschatological. Whew, that's a big word, which basically means it has a future aspect, an end times aspect, uh, a not right now aspect, but in the future. Zeta. Click us in. We're good. Okay. 
See, that was only like a 45-second delay in the sermon. We were prepared. We're, we're ready for these things. Anyway, eschatological means a future end times aspect to what Jesus is teaching here. And that's evident in verse 27, right here where Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to come. That speaks of future events, right? He's going to come in his Father's glory with the angels and a reward. And so this, uh, this one verse, Jesus actually explains in a little bit better detail in his revelation to John, the last chapter in the Bible, which is Revelation chapter 22. And I want you guys uh, to get this this morning. <clears throat> in Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus said this, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. Right? We just read this in Matthew. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And he says this, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Now, you might go, what in the world is he talking about? There's a lot of symbolism here, in which I'll break down uh, for you. <clears throat> the washed robes is a reference to Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, obviously we're not talking about a literal interpretation here, right? Because we all know if you take something and you wash it in blood, it doesn't come out white. Right? We all understand that. That's not a literal. This is what, we're, what is being communicated to us here, that Christ's sacrifice, right? His, his going to the cross and shedding his blood for you and I was payment for our sin. And when that, uh, that payment is accepted on our behalf, we are washed clean in the eyes of God, that that sin is removed and we are as white as snow. So our dirty robes washed with Jesus' blood makes us clean before God. That's the symbolism uh, that is there. Now let's go back. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. This is a reference back to Genesis. And the tree of life is symbolic of immortality, eternal life. That there's no death. An eternal live forever. So the person who has washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb has accepted Jesus Christ's sacrifice and we are now clean before God has the right to immortality, eternal life, and may go through the gates into the city. The city is symbolic of the eternal dwelling place of God and redeemed humanity. Okay, so those who have been redeemed by God through Jesus' sacrifice have this right to go into heaven. It might not be the batteries, huh? Goes on outside of the city are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So he's saying, hey, there's a difference. Uh, the reward for those who have accepted me, right? Accepted the 
Jesus Christ as payment for their sin, those who turn from their life of sin and live as a new creation after the example of Christ, these are the ones who will find eternal life in heaven. All that to say, right, lose your life here, meaning the, the trajectory of what you were on when you meet Christ, you say goodbye to that life, you say yes to the life in Christ. Those who, who do that, lose your life here, find life there. It's the exchange. It's the promise from God. So that's the eschatological, the future, end times aspect of what Jesus is talking about here. And this is the one that I think we understand the, the most. That when I say yes to Jesus, I'm guaranteed a spot in heaven when that day comes. Right? So let's move on, though. Let's, there's the, the future aspect, and then there's the present aspect of what he's talking about. Right? The first one he was talking about, present action affects a future result. This one he's talking about, present action affects present results. And one of the places he speaks about this um, is in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look at that this morning in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to bounce around a bit because I don't want to take the time today to read the entire Sermon on the Mount in this piece. But in verse 19, he says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he's, he's contrasting this life on earth versus life uh, in heaven. And he's saying, hey, there's activities here on earth that will store up treasure for you. But there's also activities here on earth that will store up treasure when you get to heaven. Right? A reward, a promise, so on and so forth. He, he goes on a, a few verses, then in verse 25 he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. This kind of sounds a little bit familiar, right? When he says, if you lose your life for me, you'll find it. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. And so, excuse me, um, he goes on in verse 26 and 30 to give us examples about uh, flowers and birds of the air and how they don't really worry, but they're provided for. And then I want to dial in to a few verses here in verse 30, um, 31 to 33. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Before we unpack this, let's define a couple of things that is being spoken of here. When he says these things, for the pagans run after these things, what is he talking about? I think all of us naturally assume he's talking about the treasure, right? He's talking about uh, treasure, but that's not really what, he's, what he says in his verse. Right, just prior he says, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? 
Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we eat? That doesn't sound like treasure, does it? That sounds That's an interesting statement. So, these things, when he's talking about these things, he's saying the food, drink, clothing, the needs and necessities of life, as well as treasure and desire. What else do we need to uh, define? What do we mean by his kingdom? What does this mean by the kingdom of God or his kingdom? This is uh, really a, a thing that, especially in a democratic uh, society in America, we don't really understand kingdom. We joke around, we see movies, we say, uh, you know, a guy, you know, uh, his home, his family's his kingdom, you know, those kinds of things. But a kingdom is the place a king rules or reigns or a ruler over, is over. It's their kingdom. They are, they are the the final authority, they reign and rule that kingdom, the place. So, if the kingdom is a place where a king reigns or rules, where is God's kingdom? Is, this, is he talking purely about heaven? Like, seek first heaven? What is he talking about? Well, where does, where does God reign and rule? In us, the hearts of men and women, the, the lives of men and women. And there's a difference here because God uh, is not like a, a dictator when it comes to reigning and ruling. He gives you the choice. Like, choose to allow me to reign and rule in your life or not. So when he says, Seek first God's kingdom or his kingdom. The, his kingdom is the reign and rule of God in your life through Jesus Christ. So it's important for us to understand the terminology uh, that's being used here. The, these things, the food, drink, clothes, the need, necessities of life, and also the treasure, and then God's kingdom. Hey, Sean, can we just switch it out? It's just starting to distract me. <laughs> I want to point out an interesting statement because he says this in verse 32 here for who runs after the necessities of life the pagans run after these things that's interesting what is what is Jesus saying the pagans run after the needs and necessities of life are, are, are we not supposed to seek the needs of this life? Is, is, that what, is that what Jesus is advocating? Like, hey, you know, don't go grocery shopping. Don't go to bed. Right? Don't go to work. Don't, you know, don't, don't go clothes shopping. Just, you know, just don't chase after those things. Don't go do those things. Is that what Jesus is advocating? Because he says, hey, the pagans do that, but you seek his kingdom. Well, what Jesus is talking about here are priorities. 
He says the pagan or the non-believer, their priority is securing the needs and desires of this life. The follower of Jesus prioritizes the reign and rule of God in their life. That there's, it's a priority issue. You see, the promise of God is that if you prioritize the reign and rule of God in your life, the needs of this life will follow. And this is, this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Because it's the economy of God, the way that God operates is counterintuitive to how this world operates. And I want to give you a biblical example of how this plays out and how this lives itself out in 1 Kings chapter 17. Uh, the story, the backstory is uh, there's a famine in the land and uh, Elijah the prophet, uh, the food and water have run, up, run out. He has none and God sends him to Zarephath, which is outside of the kingdom of Israel. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. So, Remember, there's a drought and famine in the land, so he's asking for some pretty important things, water and food. So that's his request, and now here's her response. As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil, olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, She's not saying, hey, we're going to eat this meal and then keel over dead. What she's saying is, is this is going to be our last meal. I have nothing after this. I have nothing else, nothing to give. This is all that I have left. So that's the request of the prophet coming from God, basically, in the condition of the widow. Prophet's response. Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. What is he saying here? He's not saying, hey, give me all your food. He's saying, give me some of what you have first and then live off the rest. For this is what the Lord's the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. He's saying, listen, do God's purpose first, which is to feed me and give me some water, and then all your needs are going to be met if you'll do that. Which is exactly what Jesus says in Seek First God's Kingdom and all of these things will be added unto you. She has a choice here, doesn't she? Like, I can't sacrifice uh, what my family needs for this guy. I don't care who he says he is. My family needs to eat. But there's a promise attached to this. She knows this is his last meal and then nothing comes. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman 
and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Church, there's multiple, multiple examples and instructions and, and of this in Scripture. Constantly, Jesus is asking, or not Jesus, uh, God is asking the Israelites to bring their first harvest to the Lord, bring the best of their flock first, uh, give to the Lord first, and then this will happen. It's a constant theme in the Old Testament that Jesus is now explaining uh, and giving in a New Testament way. This, this idea in the, in, in the economy of God that when we demonstrate the rule and reign of God in our lives, we do that by prioritizing God's expectations, needs, wills, desires over our own needs, wills, uh, desires. That, that God comes through. When we do this, when we prioritize God over ourselves, God promises to take care of our needs. It's the economy of God. And my question today for us as a church is, are you seeking the reign of rule of God in your life? Or is it just a verbal affirmation? Do we just stand up here and sing and we proclaim, God, you reign, you rule my life, I love you, I got the goosebumps, I can go home. And then we take our lives in our own hands and we run and, and there's nowhere in our life that we demonstrate that he actually is the reign, uh, reigning king and ruler of our life. How does this play out? Well, what are the needs and desires in your life? Just basic human needs that we all have. Money's probably the biggest one, right? We all have money. We all need money. The other thing I hear is busy. We all need time. Oh, I'm busy. Just, oh, I got too much going on. Oh, it's busy, 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 busy. How about relationships? Friends, family members, uh, loneliness. Uh, you know, you're seeking a mate or a spouse, um, right? There's relationship needs. There's energy. I'm getting to the age now where, guess what? I, I run out of energy before the day is over. It's terrible. And everyone like 15 over goes, yeah, uh-huh, yep. And everyone under goes, I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. I joked around with you that when I went on vacation, I had my grandkids for the week. I had to nap every day. I was like, geez, Louise, like, I don't have enough energy. We all have a philosophy with the way we live life. Right? The, we look around and we say, hmm, how should I be living my life? There's a need for, for a, a structure and an approach and how we view and see life. There's a reputation and an image that we all, that's important to us to put forward. How do people perceive me? Right? These, these kinds of things are needs, wishes, desires, and there's more. We can talk about them over and over. The question is this. When it comes to your time... Are you too busy for God? You say, God, I'm sorry, I can't spend any time with you today because I'm too busy. Well, guess what? You've just prioritized the busyness over God. So he doesn't reign and rule over your calendar or your day. Whatever else you've put in that place has now become an idol because that is now ruling and reigning your time and your schedule. 
your money. God says, hey, bring a first fruit to my storehouse, and then you'll have plenty to go around. You say, well, God, I got too many bills this month. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't tithe. When I'm making enough money, God, I'll tithe. And God says, that's not the way my economy works. My economy works when you give out of your need, I supply all your needs. How about your energy? Like, well, God, I'm tired at the end of the day. I don't really have time to serve you. I'm exhausted. I ache, I this, I that. Mentally, I'm checked out like I can't. So God, you know, uh, you know when, I'm, when this season of life is over and I have the energy, you know, I'll, I'll volunteer and I'll, I'll serve you. You haven't prioritized God with your energy. He doesn't reign and rule over your energy. Something else does. Your reputation, your image, how you want other people to see you. God says, well, I want you to be seen as this, as my servant, as my follower of Christ. Give those things to me. Follow after me. Adopt the way uh, it means to be a follower of Christ. Yeah, well, you know, society kind of frowns on that part of it, so I'm going to, you know, kind of ride the fence. And God says, well, obviously in this area, I don't reign and rule in your life. Your philosophy of how you, how you live life, how you conduct yourself, the reason you do things, the reason why you vote the way you vote, and the reason why you carry yourself the way you do, and where you live, and how you interact with the community, all of these approaches to life, is, is, are, you, are you giving them to God and saying, God, how do you want me to live? What's your philosophy for my life? Because Romans, Romans says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed from what? The pattern of this world. The world has a certain pattern that tells you how to think and what's important and value systems, right? The world has that pattern. Have you noticed? And if you don't line up with that pattern, you're an outsider. But when God reigns and rules in your life, you say, I don't care what the world says. I'm patterning my life how God wants me to, not how the world says I should. You see, when we, we proclaim with our mouths that God, you reign, you're awesome, you're Lord, you're Christ, you're majesty, you're my savior, right? Like all these kinds of things we do for God, but then our lives don't line up with it. There's a disconnect. He's not really Lord. And here's the thing. Jesus says, if you, if you will lose your life for me, the things that you think you need, the things that the desires of your heart that are so important to you, if you will lose those things for me, you'll have everything you need. I mean, the rubber really meets the road where it goes, hey, we have enough money to tithe or go on vacation. What do you do? God says, give me, give me the first. And you'll have what you need. And as a pastor, it's really hard for me to stand up here because the excuse from us as people, us, me included, because I haven't perfected this at all, is, well, God, you would, you would want my family to go on vacation and rest, wouldn't you? Well, God, you would, you would want me to have a good reputation in my community, wouldn't you? God, you would, you would want my children to be 
you know, uh, well uh, balanced in with the people their age, so they should participate in these sports that take them out of church on Sunday. Right? God, you would want this. This, this is synonymous with you, right, God? And God says, yes, but not at the expense of me being your Lord and Savior. And when you choose that over that, you're demonstrating who really runs your life. And church, as a culture, as an American culture, we like to run our own lives. I'm in charge of me. Don't tell me what I need to do or not do or say or think or believe. How dare you? I'm in charge of me. That's how most of us feel. Now, I get that when you're talking to maybe another individual person, like, hey, don't, don't try to make your values my values. But when it comes to God, that attitude needs to drop the, to the floor and say, God, you tell me how I should think, how I should live, how I should move, how I should be. Because you reign and rule in my life. And the question is today is, um, does God reign and rule or is he getting the leftovers? Because church, if God is getting the leftovers, there's not going to be a move of God in this place. Not at 154 Bierce's Way, not on Cape Cod, not in Massachusetts, not in the United States. It's when the people of God stand up and say, I'm going to live and demonstrate that God reigns and rules in my life. And it may cost me, but I trust God at his word that if I will give him the first and I will, I will consider him first, that everything else I need will, will show up. And you know why I, preach, I can preach with authority like that? Because I, I grew up with a mom who lived that way. And I saw miracle after miracle after miracle of God taking care of her needs because she put God first. The thing is, we never test God in that. We, we don't say, hey God, you know, I'm really exhausted, so I'm going to stay home and I know you understand and God says, well, you're never going to get to see me energize you when you move through your exhaustion. You know, God, I, I really can't, I got to pay this bill. I can't afford to tithe. I said, well, you're not going to see my natural, my supernatural provision because you're taking control in your own life. And so when you never see God move in these ways, you then have doubt that God can move supernaturally. But you've never tested God and let him move supernaturally because you're in control. God works differently than the world around us. When we seek his reign and his rule in our life first, meaning we make God the priority, you will experience life. It's his promise. It is his promise. My belief is that God wants us to demonstrate to the world around us what it looks like to make God a priority. To make, what does it look like that God reigns in my life? That when God asks me to do something or to give something or to say something, that I prioritize his, his wants and his needs over my own. And in doing so, I watch the provision of God in my life in ways that I could never imagine. And when the world around us sees that, Nobody walks away from the faith who's living that kind of lifestyle. Where when you give and God gives back, 
where when you say yes and God multiplies, like the little boy who when there's a crowd of 5,000 men and the disciples are like, geez, where are we going to find enough food to feed all these people? And this little boy walks up with his lunch bag. You can have my lunch. Right? Tuss, that's ridiculous. Thank you, Johnny. You go now. That's not going to meet any needs here. But that's what God wants you to do. God, I don't have much to give. I don't know how this is going to make a difference, but I'll give it if you can use it. And God says, I'll take that. And here, Johnny, here's 12 baskets left over. Right? (laughs) That's the economy of God. That's the, hey, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And when, we're, when you live in this vein of you're seeking God first, you're giving him first, and it doesn't make sense on the ledger, whether it be your, your calendar ledger or your money ledger, and you're like, uh, you know, we're, we really can't do this. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the resources. But God reigns rules in my life, so he's first. And then you watch God just give you the things that you need, and not even the bare minimum, in abundance. You go, how could I serve but any other? And when somebody says, you know, there's really no proof of the existence of God, you go, I have proof. I have proof. You can't talk me out of anything. You might have some sort of scientific, theological position that sounds all good to the ear, but you know what? I know when I hear that you're wrong. <laughs> and that's what happens when you live this kind of life, which is why Jesus says, if you lose your life for me, you'll actually find it in the here and now. And then it excites you. You want to live more this way. You're like, huh, let's see how far I can go with this with God. How much can I give? And then transformation happens in your life, the people who touch your life. It happens in your church. It happens in your community. So what's our response to this? And Sean, I don't know if you can come up or not, but I know this. Nobody does this perfectly. Nobody does this perfectly. I definitely, there are times I'm trusting God with certain things. I'm like, yeah, God, you got this, you got this, and the rubber gets hard, and I'm like, okay, I'll take it back for right now, God, because obviously it doesn't seem like you really have it. Or there's areas in my life where I'm just uncomfortable completely giving it over to God. But I also know this, that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. And he's revealing to you where you need to seek God first. You say, you know what? That excuse that, God, I, I, uh, I don't have time for devotional life with you because I'm just too busy. Mm, it's kind of revealing, isn't it? Has work become your idol? Has recreation become your idol? Have people become your idol? Or, or God, you know, I, I know, I know you want me to tithe and trust you with my finances, but you know what? It's just too tight. I can't, God. Hmm. Or God's asked you to speak to that neighbor. 
develop a relationship with that person who's far from God, and you're like, you know what? As soon as they find out I'm a Christian, they might not like me anymore. It's, it's kind of seeking God in the wrong, wrong way, right? So I know that the Holy Spirit's revealing to you right now where you need to seek God first. Maybe for you, it's just the first step. It's like, hey, I'm in control of my life. I've never asked God into my life. I've never accepted his sacrifice and washed my robe in the blood of the lamb uh, for that symbolism. And maybe that's you. You need to say, you know what, Lord, I give you, I give you my life. That's my first step. So I know the Holy Spirit's revealing to you today. I also know that your life in the present that Christ promises, the reason it eludes you is because where you've placed Christ. So you hear the preached word, you feel the goosebumps on service, but your regular life, you're like, I don't understand why my life is not what the preacher preaches about. It's not what I see on, on other Christians on TV or even the other Christians that I rub shoulders with. And my life is, is not this thing. And I would challenge you that it's because of where you've placed God in the pecking order of priority in your life. That God wants to be restored to, to that he reigns and rules in your life. No one else. And then everything else falls into place. So today I want to take time and I challenge you today to commit today to demonstrate that God reigns and rules in your life. Commit today to put God in his rightful place in your life. Say, Lord, I am not in control of my life. You are. And I will go where you go. I will say what you say. I will do what you do. I, will, I, I am yours. Because you're creator. And in doing so, not only will I have a future salvation of my life, that I will have the right to immortality and to live with you for an eternity, but I will also experience life on this earth like no other people do, other than your followers. If you're a believer here today, I know that you've experienced those amazing moments where you've been a part of seeing God move Maybe you responded, you, you gave somebody something, you, an act of service, and they were blown away. How did you even know I needed this? And this and that, and like just their faith, and you walk away and you're charged. You're like, man, that was amazing. God used me. That could be every day for you. Does God reign and rule in your life? If not, I think you guys have a song, right, you're going to sing? As they sing this song, I challenge you to find a place at the altar, find a place in your seat, somewhere where you're not distracted. And just take a moment and commit to God and place him in his rightful place in your life. After we do that, we'll, we'll pray together and then we'll dismiss.
exalted far above all gods but thou O Lord art high above all the earth thou art exalted far above all gods and I exalt thee I exalt thee I Church, can we just stand and sing that together? Let's exalt the name of God together. 
Let's just raise our voices and say, Lord, we exalt you. Which exalt means just I set you up high above everything else. You're exalted. And let that be a proclamation from your heart and your prayer. We exalt thee. We exalt thee. today. Lord, today we recommit to put you in your proper place in our life as Lord, as King, as reigner and ruler of our lives. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to reveal to us the areas in our life that we might have taken control of or or running it uh, where we've set up an idol, Lord, where you're not reigning and ruling. And Holy Spirit, We know as you reveal these things to us, you'll walk us and lead us in the right direction. So come, Lord, fill our hearts as we place you as the priority in our life, knowing that your promises are good, are true, and faithful. And as we place you as priority, you will supply all of our needs. We trust you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you've come to give us life, and not just eternal life, but life here as we follow you. We praise you. We love you. In your precious name, amen.